Good morning. My name's Dan. Uh, I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning and not looking up as I do so. Uh, So if you need a church Bible, please throw up your hand. Um, It is on page 594 uh, of the church Bibles. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love. Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, and our rafters are cypresses. I am a wildflower flower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. Like an apricot tree among the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, for I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This is the word of God. Well read, well read. Well, hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If I haven't met you before, my name is Ben and I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great that I can be here in the flesh, to be able to bring God's Word to you. Um, Keep your Bibles open because it's going to be really important for us as we keep tracking through this song. Why don't I pray for us before we begin? 
Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word that you speak to us. We pray that you would help us to see what you're saying, and you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would be moulding our hearts to be more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, up until 2013, there was a segment on the radio. It ran for 16 years. You might remember it. It was called Love Song Dedications. Richard Mercer was the host in his smooth and sultry voice. It would just get people in the mood for love. People would ring him up at all hours of the night. They'd tell him about their love, and they'd dedicate a song to him. But his last dedication was pretty special because his own love, Sharon, requested his very last love song. I thought I'd share just a snippet, just a little snippet of what she wrote. This is what she said. My dear Richard, I thought after all these years of giving out other people's dedications that you more than anyone deserve one. But the thing is, it's hard to pick a song for you, Richard, because you are every song. And then she just keeps going on about how much she loves him. (laughs) And he read it out. I think it's fair to say the world loves love. There's just something about it. It pulls us in its direction. It's something everyone craves. We all know love is an important part of life. And so when love goes wrong, we don't have our white picket fence, we're almost left feeling that love isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And we ourselves don't need to look very far to feel the pull and tug of love snap. And so we sing along with Hadaway, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I give you my love, but you don't care. So what is right and what is wrong? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And yet onto the stage walks the song of songs. Chapter 8, love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. This is a song dedicated to love and sex and marriage, and it shows us how God created these things to be. But you don't need me to tell you that it's a little weird, right? But it's also God's word to us. It's God's word to everyone. It's a lamp to our feet. It's always good. And so have a look at verse 1, because this is a song written by Solomon. And that shouldn't surprise us very much, because in 1 Kings chapter 4, it tells us that he wrote 1,005 songs. But this one is his greatest hit, the song of all songs, Solomon's love song dedication. Not to a certain lady, but to love itself. It's a song dedicated to celebrating the love between a man and a woman in marriage. Which might sound a little weird coming from the guy who had a thousand women in his life. But actually, even the wisest of kings can be really dumb. And Solomon's pitfall, I think, shows us what happens when we open the door to love at the wrong time. And too often. So here it is. The Song of Songs. Solomon's love song dedication. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to track through um, because God is saying something to us today. Four things about love. Sorry about the blank outline. You'll run with me. We're at our first point. Right from the get-go, we see love desires intimacy. Point one, love desires intimacy. You see, right from the start of this song, it begins with a bang. The curtains are drawn. The spotlight comes on. There's a young lady singing to her man to give her a kiss. But it's not just a little peck on the cheek, but it's a kiss full of passion. 
because she makes it very clear. She repeats herself, in case he's missed the cue, the kisses of his mouth. It's a kiss full of passion. And when I first read this, I didn't really think much of it, but then I realized I was reading it through my 21st century, sex-soaked, ultra-sexualized culture that surrounds me. Where you turn on the television and sexual innuendo is humor. You drive down the road and sex is what sells. We live in a world where we've taken God's good gift and it's been watered down. Because we might be tempted to just see this as two lovebirds standing in the rain and his saying, you had me at hello. But it's something deeper. We need to read this through the eyes of ancient Israel. Because this is something not just reserved for a young, ambitious couple dating each other, but a couple bound in marriage. And so she turns to the man who's standing next to her and she zones in on him. She draws us closer in. She addresses him directly. For your caresses, for your love, is more delightful than wine. Now, in your Bibles, you might see a little footnote, and if you go down the bottom, it says it could be acts of love, and that's because the word in the Hebrew, it's just one word, loves. It's the plural noun for love. And what our translators have tried to do is they've tried to smooth that out for us. But she's effectively saying your love is more delightful than wine. And I think that's a better way to read it because his love isn't just limited to soft touches, but it's words of affirmation. It's deep feelings of love. It's all of him loving all of her. But his love is better than wine. Now, as I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about this line because why is love better than wine? One particular person I was talking to said uh, wine is a little bit like toilet water, which would make anything better than wine. But for another, here's a word-for-word quote. I asked them, why is wine so good? And they said, it's the best. It's delicious. You match it with food, it's creative and it's varied, and a wine by the fire is the most ideal life moment. You see, in Israel, wine was a symbol of delight, pleasure, happiness. It was meant to conjure up images of touch and taste and smell and it made people cheerful and happy and it smelt nice and it gave you just a little sense of delight and pleasure but it always faded but love real deep biblical love is more real more eternal more desirable and more relational than just a cup of wine and so why is his love better than wine we'll have a look at verse 3 The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. You see, our young woman finds the very scent of her man intoxicating. She loses all control of herself just by being near him. He fills her nostrils with delight and it's like she's being drawn closer and closer and closer to him. He's like a pie sitting on the edge of a window that kind of drags Yogi Bear towards it. His fragrance... It's pleasing and it's good and it fills her with delight. But it's more than just apple pie. It's more than just a little Dolce and Gabbana, the one cologne. No, she delights in all that he is on the inside and the out. Because what is it that she finds pleasing? It's his name. It's his reputation. It's his character that smells pleasing to her. She sees past the exterior and delights in who he is. Not what he looks like. And because he is so great, his name and his character is so great, he's swooned on by all the women. He's the one that everyone wants to dance with on the P&O cruise. He's the one everyone wants to sit next to at church or have them serve morning tea. People just want to be near this guy. 
But who is it that he picks? Verse 4, she says, Take me with you, let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Uh, these chambers are bridal chambers, a place where a married couple would go to consummate their marriage. And so right from the get-go, we see a married couple desiring intimacy from each other. We see how love desires intimacy. And this is really important because they're not demonstrating their intimacy, they're desiring it. You see how they speak in requests? Let him kiss me, oh, that he would. Don't worry, he will. And this is really important because it means it's not just limited to sex. It's more than that. Our couple desire intimacy. And so what we see straight from the get-go is that God has made marriage to be between a man and a woman. In a world that has said the Bible has put a straitjacket around love, it's boring and it's outdated and it's burdensome and it's a bummer, we need to push back and celebrate this truth. It's not something to be ashamed about. Because look at verse 4. We will rejoice and be glad in you. Here, our young lady in the spotlight, she's joined on stage by some young women. Maybe you might have a heading that says friends or others or daughters of Jerusalem. These headings have just been added in by our translators. They've looked at the pronouns, his kisses, her face, and they've tried to work out, okay, who, he's speaking now and she's speaking now, and then there's this third group. This third group are kind of like backup singers. They stand to the side, they're like in Hercules, those little sassy fairies that sometimes just sing and add a different perspective to the song. Here, our backup singers, they delight in the love that our man has for this woman. They celebrate that his love, the love that he has to give, is greater than wine. And so they celebrate a love that desires intimacy. And so we should too. Husbands and wives should desire to be intimate with each other. But you know, the Bible, it actually speaks about another kind of love that's more real and more satisfying and more eternal. It's the love of God for his people. The love of God, which is more intimate and more close than anything else. Psalm 63 is on the screen behind me. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Love between a man and a woman might be better than wine, but the love of God is better than life. It's more satisfying, more fulfilling, more joyful, more breathtaking, more beautiful than anything else that exists in this world. And what does the love of God fill us with? A desire to be close to Him. I eagerly seek you, I thirst for you. To seek Him and thirst for Him and faint for Him and glorify Him and bless Him and be satisfied in Him. So love desires intimacy. That's point one. But love also finds the other person beautiful. Point two, love sees only beauty. Let's look at verse five. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. Now you see, in our society where people would kill for that sun-tanned olive look, in Israel it was the complete opposite. You see, it was a sign of poverty 
was a sign of poverty because it was the rich people that would stay inside and pay all the slaves to do all the hard yucca labor outside and they're the ones that would have dark skin meanwhile the rich people who would stay inside would have light colored skin and so what our lady is saying is effectively i'm not pretty by the standards of the world i haven't even had time to care for my own vineyard my own body she's saying i'm imperfect i'm unattractive i'm broken and yet did you see that she finds herself lovely there's this quiet confidence in herself that despite all the imperfections she knows that she is delightful she knows that beauty is more than what's on the outside and so she's confident to ask her her man her, this shepherd where he pastures his flock in verse 7 did you see that because she's sick and tired of having to spend her days with him and his buddies tell me you whom i love where do you pasture your sheep where do you let them rest at noon why should i be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions she just wants a little alone time to get away for a secret rendezvous and then he speaks the spotlight shines on him and he answers her you see all throughout this song they're going to sing back and forth like aladdin and jasmine in a whole new world or diana ross and lionel richie in endless love or Cher and Sunny singing, I got you, babe. She says, I'm dark and I'm swarthy and I'm imperfect and I'm broken. And he just takes one look at her in verse 8 and says, you are beautiful. You are the most beautiful of women. And he says it again in verse 15. Not because he can't think of another word to say. Trust me, he'll get much more descriptive. But because he wants to hammer home the point. And he wants to tell her where she can find him to have a little alone time. Follow me, he says. And she sings back to him in verse 16. She calls him beautiful. In our Bibles, they've kind of helped us out by saying it's, it's handsome. But actually, she uses the exact same word that he uses for her. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. They find each other beautiful. Because to him, she's like a mare in verse 9 which would kind of sound weird if I was to call my wife Cat a horse. It's kind of an insult more than anything, but it's not an insult. He's saying, you are noble, you are honourable, you are worthy. And just like Pharaoh would adorn only the best horses to pull his chariot with jewels, he wants to do the same thing for her because she's worth every penny. But to her, he is like myrrh, verse 13. It's this delightful gum resin that has this really nice fragrance. It's aromatic. And his head is on her chest. And she's just breathing him in. He's in a deeply vulnerable position, close to her heart. And he's like a flower found in En Gedi. It's just the place where David took refuge from Saul. It's a place of refreshment. And so she's saying, I am breathing in your love and being refreshed by it. And so I think that means there are two implications here. Uh, the first is that we see that our two main characters are shepherds. Which means back in verse 4, he's not actually a king, but in her eyes he is. And so we have two ordinary people in love. Which means this picture of love is realistic. It's a love reflected by two ordinary, run-of-the-mill people in love. They're not superstars, they're just shepherds. 
He's just a boy and she's just a girl, but more importantly, he's teaching us that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And he isn't swayed by what the world thinks. Because, you know, I think we've bought the lie that the world and the media have told us about beauty. We've bought the lie that the perfect person does exist. Because here she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in spite of what the world says. In a world where beauty is defined by the influences on Instagram and on the, the Tok Tok where the flawless photoshopped people kind of show us what beauty is, no, we see that love finds the other person beautiful. And it's more than just this butterflies and feeling in your stomach. It's a whole lot more. But just like we considered that the love of God is greater than life, you know, so too does God find us beautiful despite our imperfections, our rebellion, and our sin. And it's only because of what Jesus did on the cross for his church. So two passages, we'll look at Ephesians 5 on the screen behind me. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, our human marriages point to something bigger. They point to something better. They point to the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. That is, when Christ returns, the marriage of Christ to his church will be everlasting. Well, the Bible says that one flesh is the closest a man and a woman will be able to express their feelings. The relationship between Christ and his church it supersedes even this, as we are united with Christ forever, with the love of God that is better than life. And so just as marriage points to this gospel truth, we need to remember human marriages will run their course, but they find their fulfillment in Christ's marriage to his people, where we will be beautifully adorned for our husband Christ. And so while we wait, our human marriages need to reflect these things. Love needs to find the other person beautiful. And so go home. Tell your husband, tell your wife that she's stunning, that she's beautiful. Because love also provides a safe and secure home. Point three, love is safe and secure. Right, let's read from verse 16. How handsome you are, my love, how delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars and the rafters are cypresses. You see, there are two things which I think define the relationship of love. So far, our couple have been focusing in on each other, but now they focus in on their life together. And the thing which will make for a healthy marriage is their bed and their house. You see, the word bed here uh, in the Hebrew, it kind of carries uh, sexual connotations. It's just introducing the place of their consummation. We heard about their chamber, but now the camera zooms in. And while we're not shown what happens, it doesn't take much imagination to work out that the bed is described as verdant. It's green, it's leafy, it's fruitful. But the bed isn't the only thing she focuses on. It's an important part of their relationship. It's the glue that will hold their one fleshness together. But what's more important is that the home they build together is safe and secure. The roof and the rafters and the structure is made up of strong cypress wood. It's something that is safe and secure. And you know, as we keep looking past this kind of love to see the love that God has for his church, 
The love that God has for us is also safe and secure and nothing can separate us from his love. So Romans 8, 38, on the screen behind me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what this implies is that our marriages should try and reflect these things too. Without going into too much detail, a safe and secure home will lead to a fruitful bed. And it's the thing that'll make and what's the thing that'll make for a safe and secure home? Well, it's our last point, point four. Love is exclusive. Love is exclusive. Let's go to verse one of chapter two. I'm a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the women. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. You see, while our woman compares herself to a lily, what she's really saying is, there's really nothing special about me. I'm just like every other woman out there. But he jumps in, he cuts her off. He says, you might be a lily, but all other women around you are like thorns. He only has eyes for her. And she only has eyes for him. He is an apricot tree. He stands out. He provides for her. He sustains her. And she sits in his shade and enjoys the rest and delight that he provides for her. They both say, you are my one and only. And you know, God says this same thing to his people. In Jeremiah chapter 30, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. God commits himself exclusively to his people and we commit himself exclusively to him. And so our couple only have eyes for each other. They're drawn to each other in an explosion of love. And we finish with verse 7. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you. By the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. We've reached the chorus of our song. She'll repeat this three times. And her charge, well, it's, it's a little bit stronger than that. She's saying, swear to me. It's a demand to make a promise that you won't stir up love until the appropriate time. And so it would be easy for us to just say that this means wait until marriage before embracing each other, waiting until marriage before having sex. And that's right, and that's true, and that's good. And if anything, our couple have shown us by their own personal experience that this is the best and good way for it to be expressed because love is powerful. It's intoxicating, it's exclusive, and it's passionate. And so while this verse is saying wait, it's also saying so much more. Because it's saying there's a time and a place to even awaken love. A time and a place to even stir it up. Because they know how powerful it is. In chapter 8, it's stronger than death. And so what does it mean to awaken love? Well, I think it means being in a place to open the door to it. Which means... I think it's not at marriage. It's kind of 10 steps back. It's not even at dating. It's seven steps back. And I think this because of two reasons. One, that we don't really arrange marriages anymore. And two, um, what we do when we date is carefully and prayerfully, in wisdom, work out if we can commit ourselves to this person for life, for better or for worse, richer or for poorer. 
in sickness and in health. And so how to do that well, how to date, that's another whole sermon in itself. But in my mind, dating ends in two ways. It only ends in two ways. You either break up or you get married. And so what is dating? It's a mutually exclusive friendship that explores the possibility of marriage. And for us, this is really important for our children, isn't it? It's important for us to keep reminding them the purposes that God has made us for, the feelings that he's put in our hearts, and the right way for them to be expressed. And so four questions come from this chorus. When's the right time to awaken and stir up love? Well, firstly, who can I stir up love with? In a sense, the Bible doesn't really give us too much, other than they're alive, they're of the opposite gender, they're not married, they're not related to you, and they're someone who's a Christian. And so the second question that I think comes from this is, are your expectations of love and marriage realistic? Are they God-centered? Do you have the right expectation about what it might look like to awaken love? What it would look like? What it would feel like? Is your expectation set by Hollywood or by the Bible? Because, you know, setting a bar like Hollywood will not only be impossible for the other person to fulfill, but you'll just end up setting yourself up for disappointment. And it's really not fair for the other person. Because love is intimate and intoxicating and beautiful and better than wine, but it's also stained by sin. And our relationships need to continue to be centred on God and his word. We need to keep having the gospel at the centre of all of our relationships. And so third question you need to ask is, are you in the right place to open the door to love? Are you in a position mentally or physically or spiritually to be committing yourself in marriage to someone? Are there some things you need to work on? Is your mental state able to care for yourself before thinking about caring for someone else? Is there anything that you think might make marriage really hard? Is there an addiction which you need to squash first? Because any kind of addiction will damage marriage before it even starts. And so fourth question, is marriage within a realistic time frame? You see, in my mind, if dating ends in two ways, break up or marriage, then dating for an indefinite amount of time, well, it's not good for you and it's not good for them. And there's no answer on when to get married, other than 1 Corinthians 7, which says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I think the answer is one of wisdom. You see, the lie that our world, and I think the church has bought, is said that you need to work out compatibility. And so take as long as you need to work that out. But you know, time and time again, Christian marriage is never about compatibility, but commitment. Because the person you wake up to on the first day of your honeymoon is a different person. The person you wake up to 10 days after your honeymoon is a different person. 10 years after your wedding day is a different person. And so the question you need to ask is, can I commit myself to this person for better or for worse? And if you can't, well then break it off. You actually haven't promised them or God anything other than exploring the possibility of marriage. And so in a sense, that relationship has been a success. And so if there's no ring, there's no thing. But So that doesn't mean go around and let your children date multiple people because if marriage is the exclusive union of a man and a woman, dating should try and somehow reflect this. And so what I actually want to say is if you're 15 and marriage is a really, really long way away, it's not the right time to stir up love. Or if you can't take good care of yourself, it might not be the right time now to try and take care of someone else. 
Because I want to say another thing, Hollywood and the world and church have done no favours because they've sold us the lie to chase our feelings. But what our passage is teaching us about love is that it is really powerful. It's more than just this fuzzy feeling, it's intoxicating. And so there's wisdom in opening the door to love at the right time and in the right place. And the world might say you're missing out, but you're really not. No one's ever died from not being married. No one's ever died from not having a boyfriend. But we as a society have elevated marriage as an idol. And so the question that I want to ask is, have you? Have you bought the lie? Have you made marriage or love an idol in your own heart? That's the first place to start. And the second is, have we as a church made marriage an idol? I think at times we have. But what we need to do is keep reminding each other that God has called us to live passionate lives for Him in whatever age and whatever stage we're at. We all live single-minded for Christ. And we as a church need to see that the marriage relationship is only a slither So it's a shadow. It doesn't even scale in comparison to God's love for his people. But at the same time, while we wait for our marriage to Christ, we still need to work hard at our relationships here on earth, including marriages. Marriage is hard work, but it's possible only by the grace of God. And so married friends, what our song is teaching us is that intimacy is good. And so when you get home, go and give your wife a kiss. Tell her that she's beautiful. Remind them of your exclusive commitment to them, for better or for worse. But the second thing that I want to say is that marriages are not just worked out by husbands and wives, but as a whole community. It's all of our job to help married people stay married, to grow in marriage. I don't know if you've ever thought that. But do you know, every Christian wedding you go to, you make a promise. Let me refresh, refresh you of these promises. It says, family and friends... Will you do everything in your power to uphold X and Y in their marriage? What do you say? We will, God being our helper. And then, will you pray for them, that they may live faithfully together as husbands and wives until their lives end? And you say, we will. So do you take those promises seriously? Do you pray for married couples to remain exclusive, to be intimate, to find each other beautiful? but we know that this isn't the goal in our lives, it's just a shadow of the reality. And so we need to keep looking to Christ, our true love who we will remain with forever. His love will never give you up. His love will never let you down. Um, But will always draw you closer and closer to him. I was going to do it, but I thought no. (laughs) Friends, human love is better better than wine. Human love is better than wine. But God's love is better than life. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love to the point where you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, even though that we were sinful. We thank you that when he returns, we will be united to him, your church, beautifully adorned. So we pray that as we keep living lives in uh, anticipation of that, that you would help us to keep working on our marriages. We ask that you would have the gospel at the centre of um, our relationships, that you would help us to delight in the person um, that we have committed to and that we as a church would continue to uphold married people until we are married to you. Amen.